Welcome to this episode of Inside the NCAA, the AMA Experience. My name is Chris Johnson, and I'm Associate Director for Academic and Membership Affairs. Our goal is to provide you insight on what we in AMA encounter on a daily basis. We'll have subject matter experts from within the national office and the membership to discuss hot topics affecting all three NCAA divisions. For today's episode, we're going to discuss the Modernization of Rules Subcommittee and its impact on the NCAA Division I legislation. And to cover this topic, we'll be talking to Ty Med, an Assistant Director for Academic and Membership Affairs. Ty, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks Chris. Ty, before we dive into the Modernization of Rules Subcommittee, also known as MRS, let's talk about your role in the National Office. I'm a assistant director for academic and membership affairs and have been at the national office for th- three years today. Um, our intern started today, so that always marks my annual um, anniversary since I started as an intern. I now serve primarily on our two Division One bylaw teams focused on um, recruiting personnel legislation as well as playing and practices in our 11-13-17 as well as our 12-15-16 team so athletics eligibility financial aid extra benefits and then within those teams have a strong legislative focus so I serve on our division one legislation team helping draft our our legislative proposals that we've seen especially in the past couple years with increased frequency. I came from Creighton. I was a student athlete, uh, cross-country student athlete, and stayed for law school at Creighton, worked in the compliance office. Um, I also work here with Division One SAC, and that was in part due to while I was at Creighton, I was part of our uh, SAC as well as part of the Big East SAC. Yeah, Ty, and it's worth noting, you're one of two people within Division One who serve across all of the 11, 13, 17, and 12, 15, 16 bylaws. So you're uniquely positioned to talk about the Modernization of Rules Subcommittee. Um, and now diving into the Modernization of Rules Subcommittee, talk to us about your philosophy or the, the committee's philosophy uh, with this with reviewing the rules. Yeah, I think modernization's philosophy is really to respond to Division One's needs. A- and you see that through their evolution since going back really to July of 21, which is when they started kind of this first charge from the Board of Directors and the Infractions Process Council. And that charge was really, we need to look at the oldest of the old rules or the rules that are just so outdated in this day and age and need to fix them, but fix them in bite-sized chunks. So under that charge, we saw changes such as getting rid of 1-900 numbers in our recruiting legislation. I don't even know what 1-900 numbers are, to be honest. That legislation hadn't changed in 20 years. It made no sense for it to be in our, in our manual. But they also had some m- more widespread and, I think, of the times legislative changes. And we saw that, um, especially in the recruiting space with the changes they made to our video materials. So our video recruiting materials legislation just didn't make sense in the social media age. So there were changes there. Our recruiting advertisement legislation didn't make sense. Our endorsement legislation, especially in the social media age, didn't make a lot of sense. And even though there had been minor changes throughout the years, it didn't meet the needs of our membership in the 21st century. So how do we make those changes? And and that was really their first charge. 
And then we had the Transformation Committee, and modernization was tasked by the Transformation Committee to make probably more widespread, broad-based changes, and then respond to those concepts and the feedback. So we saw a lot of socialization of concepts before they became legislative proposals in the modernization space to provide the membership the ability to react and tell modernization either you're going down the right path or you're not which is why I think their philosophy is best summed up as responding to the needs of the membership. Yeah, great. And in terms of responding to the needs of the membership, the Modernization of Rules Subcommittee is composed of individuals from the membership. And how do they begin to take a look at like their next subject they want to talk about? So uh, under the first charge and that, that kind of infractions-based board of directors charge, that was guided heavily um, by probably three buckets. I think the first bucket is legislation that had been on the books and unchanged for 20, 30, I think we found one 40 years out. And really, why is this rule on the books? And the answer was typically, well, no one's really following it anyways, or it's just so outdated it didn't have a big impact. So it made no sense in our kind of standard, long legislative process to have a legislative change in this area was just unimpactful in that sense. So that's kind of their first bucket under the old charge. Their second bucket was guided by um, data from our enforcement staff. So enforcement pulled data in various um, bylaws and said, these are the ones we are most frequently seeing level three or secondary violations or what we kind of would colloquially think as minor violations. We're seeing a lot of minor violations in these areas. So is that because it is a rule that is just easily broken, or is it a rule that needs to be changed because it's not meeting the needs and we're just catching up to that and that's what we're seeing in the level three space? So that was that kind of second bucket. And then the third bucket was guided by AMA and we brought to them areas of legislation, again, data-based, where we were seeing a high frequency of interpretations and a high frequency of waivers. So the interpretations either told us the membership is confused on the impact of this or disagrees with the impact of this, and that's why they're asking us why they have to follow the rule. Or from a waiver standpoint, they're asking for relief from this rule so frequently that we need to think about whether or not it is something that's meeting the needs of our membership today. So that was the old charge. Under the Transformation Committee charge and then at following the Transformation Committee from the board, they've really been told where to operate, but with some flexibility. So they were told, go operate in personnel. Well, personnel is a whole big bylaw. What they really meant was look at our coaching limits. Go operate in bylaw 13, pay special attention to visits go operate in bylaw 15, pay special attention to team limits. So that's been more so post the formation of the Transformation Committee and then following kind of the roadmap to transformation the board's taken us down. They've more so been informed by those entities where to operate with kind of that flexibility of how best to legislate that. So talk about, you know, once the the MRS or modernization group discovers something that they want to change. What, what is their legislative track um, towards proposing new legislation? So, so modernization has access to what's 
now called the modernization track. They haven't used it as frequently recently because their changes have been more broad-based. But they did use it early on under that kind of, we'll call it biting at the edges charge and, and really bite-sized legislative changes because they recognized, right, these were the areas that hadn't been changed because they weren't super impactful or were causing a lot of confusion, but people knew what they were. So that modernization track allowed them to introduce a legislative proposal during a council meeting one month. That introduction provides the notice to the membership, hey, this is a legislative change we're looking at and considering. And then the next council meeting, the ability to adopt that legislation and have it effective immediately if needed, maybe a delayed effective date depending on, again, the, the needs of the membership in those areas. So that was the modernization track. We don't see that as frequently because their most recent legislative changes have been broad-based changes to, mm -hmm. to our coaching limits. That's not something we can really stomach a change of knowing about it one month, changing it the next month. The same thing with our visit legislation. And But that modernization track has laid the foundation for potentially what we're looking at in this new legislative process context. So we're looking at a new legislative process potential that is far more nimble and responsive to the membership, not only on looking at potentially designating three council meetings as full-blown legislative council meetings and minimizing the time in which it takes to introduce and adopt legislation from six to ten months to three-ish, four-ish months, but also looking at an expedited process that provides the membership some notice, that maybe 30 days notice, but the ability to respond quickly when our legislation does need to change to meet the, the needs of the membership. So that modernization track has really laid the foundation for that. But that's not always what's best. Moving quickly is not always what's best. So we've seen some of the modernization recommendations be introduced into what you call the normal cycle or not even introduced, but the concepts socialized. Because ultimately, what member modernization is focused on is adoptable legislative changes. What is the membership going to ultimately adopt? So they'll spend time socializing the concepts and reaching out to relevant stakeholders to ensure before this even becomes a legislative proposal, before we even talk about voting on something, is it something that's going to get some broad-based support in the membership? And, and Ty, you've already alluded to something that people should be tracking on in the June council meeting. Um, what else should should people be tracking on coming into the June council meeting? So modernization has um, various areas of legislation they're looking at right now under kind of this roadmap to transformation that was laid out by the board in January. And right now they're spending a lot of their time in Bylaw 12 and then in Bylaw 15, somewhat in 17. And in Bylaw 12, what they're looking at is really our amateurism process and especially the differences between pre- and post-enrollment, and then the areas of our legislation we're kind of seeing some of that more traditional modernization. The rules are old. Can we change these? And what that looks like is can we get to a spot where pre-enrollment, we allow 
some form of professionalization of our student athletes and say that when we talk about amateurism, when we talk about what it means to be an NCAA athlete, that means that you're not a professional when you're with us for your four or five years. Is that a palatable option? We don't know. I think that concept will be socialized far more than it will be introduced in June, but it's something council is going to talk about. When you come to us and we recognize our, a lot of our student-athletes have professional aspirations, while you're with us, is there an ability to try out with a professional team or practice with a professional team as long as it doesn't interrupt um, your championship season? I think that's a concept we're going to see council talk about. And then we've had a lot of conversations both kind of in the legislation NCAA and legislation federal context surrounding agents because they're a reality right now in the NIL landscape but we still have an agent prohibition for our student athletes seeking professional athletics opportunities and those don't seem to align but we want to make sure our student athletes are protective before pulling the guardrails off so there's probably going to be a good conversation around the utility of agents and the information they're able to give our student-athletes while still ensuring proper guardrails are in place to protect them, especially from, from bad actors. So that'll be what council spends some time talking about and will get various options for modernization in, in June. And they'll also talk about financial aid. Our financial aid team limits, for the most part, haven't changed since the 1990s. In the 1990s, they weren't increased, they were reduced. And there isn't rationale that anyone can really find to support the financial aid team limits we have in place right now. So they're undergoing a very data-driven exercise of looking at our team financial aid limits and asking whether they meet the needs of our membership recognizing that since the 1990s, participation in intercollegiate athletics is far greater than it was back then. So shouldn't our scholarship numbers be far greater than it was in the 1990s? And I think we'll spend some time um, in financial aid looking at those team limits because that's a very difficult data-driven exercise to take in all the inputs that go into to picking picking one number for one sport. So that's what they're looking forward to, I think, in June, recognizing they've got kind of an October deadline set by the board for some form of a final proposal. But we'll see those concepts socialized to the membership for feedback sooner than we're going to see them in pure legislative form. And switching gears here, Ty, um, the last question is talk to me about the collaboration that AMA has with with other departments. I'm sure it stretches far more than the the compliance offices on campus that are involved with with some of the legislation. Talk to me a little bit about the collaboration you've had, not only with our institutions, but also, you know, within the national office. So I think the collaboration from a modernization standpoint really, truly isn't just within the national office. It's talking of when we're doing these big legislative proposals, who are the external stakeholders that need to be informed and need to provide feedback so that the legislation is is palatable and adoptable. I think the best example of that is this personnel legislation we just adopted. So we just increased the coaching limits for nearly every sport. It certainly isn't increased for everyone, but 
part of the reason that's the case and it wasn't just a simple formula was because of the feedback modernization received. So they started with a concept that said, you know what, institutions, we're going to not set coaching limits. We don't think those are necessary as a national rule. That's an institutional decision process. That was the original concept. And that was socialized to our membership. And the feedback from our membership was that's not palatable. And it's not palatable for two reasons. One is student-athlete well-being. We don't need all of these individuals in the ears of student-athletes. We need to set a limit on the individuals who can coach our student-athletes. And the second reason was the competitive inequity that no limit could potentially um, result in. So in order to maintain the competitiveness of NCAA Division I athletics, we need to have a limit. But we recognize that the limits might not be right now. So what modernization undertook was looking at each sport, eliminating a couple personnel designations that didn't make sense, offsetting those eliminations with an additional coach. And then once they did that, they sent a letter to every single sports coaches association and said, this is the number we've arrived upon. We believe this is the number that best supports our student athletes. But if you disagree, let us know and tell us why. So we saw some adjustments to what modernization's initial concept was from a number standpoint based on that feedback from coaches associations and then for those committees and sports that have some access to our governance structure from those committees as, as well. So based on that, we have a legislative proposal that took months to develop went through several iterations, but ultimately was adopted by council in January and goes into effect July 1st. And I think the success of that proposal was entirely contingent on modernization, actively ensuring they weren't the only people providing feedback and developing the proposal. The proposal needed to be informed by stakeholder feedback and collaboration. And because of that collaboration, we had a successful very wide-sweeping legislative proposal adopted. Ty, thank you for taking the time to share your expertise on the Modernization of Rules Subcommittee uh, and its role in Division I legislation. Um, this will definitely be things that we'll be keeping an eye on come the June Council meeting and even after the June Council meeting. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Inside the NCAA, the AMA Experience. Be on the lookout for our next episode in July.